Last week I spoke to you about Paul's message to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 6. I challenged you with the picture of the Roman legion which parallels that of the church. Under the Marian reforms, non-landowners had been given the opportunity to participate in the armed defense of the Republic and later the Empire. Under these reforms, they received equipment, training, pay, and a pension in the form of a parcel of land. In a short period of time, large numbers of people were who were marginalized and saw no future but poverty for themselves and their families were given a new opportunity. They were provided with an honorable profession with equipment, training, and pay. They were elevated to a respected class in their society. Paul uses these, these items as themes which parallel the experience of the church. Once they were nobodies in society, but now they are elevated to somebodies in God's kingdom. Once they were directionless and had no hope, now they have a mission and a future. One of the items that needs emphasis from this passage is the idea of equipping. Like many of you, I have heard many messages on this passage of scripture. Many of them emphasize the individual items of the Roman soldier's kit. The sword, the helmet, the breastplate, the belt, and the shoes. Important stuff. I want to emphasize the idea that all of that equipment is provided. Picture yourself as a new recruit in the Imperial Regiment. You've been inducted and you've started your training. Now you've been issued your equipment. Here's the question. What will you do with it? Will you admire it and discuss it and research its history? Or will you pick it up, put it on, and learn to master its use? Paul is advocating the latter. It's already been provided. God has provided all of the necessary kit. Pick it up, use it, practice, train, master its use. Don't let it be a mere discussion point. You have been called and anointed. Act like it. Get on with it. Today we're taking up the topic of miracles. Many in Western society have given up on the idea of miracles. Our emphasis on empirical evidence and natural process has severely discounted the possibility of miracles. Even when empiri empirical documentary evidence of a miracle is provided, we default to attempting to find some naturalistic explanation. The truth is, that miracles are jarring. I remember the first miracle that I ever saw with my own eyes. It disturbed me. I was a new Christian. I volunteered to be a part of the choir at a Catherine Kuhlman meeting. It was, I was about 10 rows back from the platform in the Pacific Coliseum. During the meeting, a woman in a wheelchair was hoisted onto the platform. It was obvious that she was suffering from rheumatoid arthritis, 
All her joints were grotesquely swollen. Her ankles, knees, and elbows were twice the diameter of the rest of her limbs. It was obvious that even the jostling of the wheelchair caused her discomfort. Then Miss Kuhlman commanded her to get up out of the wheelchair. She didn't pronounce her healed. She just told her to get up. At first she refused, but after a few minutes she started to get out of the wheelchair. Initially, assistance helped her. It was obvious she was in a great deal of pain. Then Miss Kuhlman ordered her to walk to the opposite end of the platform. It was unbelievable. I thought it was the cruelest thing I had ever seen. But she walked, or she shuffled, that's a better description. Then she was commanded to walk back, which she did. As she began the return trip, it was apparent that something was happening. She started to walk with a little more freedom. She seemed to be experiencing less pain. This went on for a while, from one end of the platform to the other. By the time she'd made a few trips, it was apparent that something else was happening as well. Not only was she walking with more freedom, more upright, but it was apparent that the swelling was going down. Her clothes around her swollen joints were becoming looser, showing more movement as she walked. She was dismissed from the platform before the process was complete. Miss Kuhlman didn't pronounce her healed. She just kind of moved on. However, after the service was over, as I was leaving, I realized that I was following this woman out along the concourse of the Colosseum. There was this woman with her family or friends in front of me, pushing her wheelchair, just regular Vancouverites. By the way, she wore Bermuda shorts and, shorts and a short sleeve blouse, so I could actually see her knees, ankles, elbows, and wrists. The oversized clothes that she wore to accommodate the swelling of her joints were flapping around her knees and elbows. She walked upright with real freedom. To tell you the truth, I didn't know what to make of it. I still puzzle over it today. Yet, I know what I saw. I know that it was real. Jesus was known as the miracle worker. And there are numerous accounts in the Gospels where Jesus did what can only be termed as miracles. Even his critics, who did not believe miracles were possible, were left without explanation. Just one example is instructive. Even the writer takes the time to provide empirical evidence that something completely unheard of had taken place. In John 9, Jesus heals a man who was blind from birth. It's John 9, verse 1 to 12. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. 
As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home, seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Then how were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Further along in the passage, we find we land in the middle of the investigation into this event. This should actually not be uh, an unfamiliar sort of process because it happens even today. It's John 9, 18 to 25. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? You can hear the skepticism. You can hear the demand for the empirical evidence, right? We know that he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. What I find interesting about this passage is the reaction of the people. They reacted just like us. What happened is against everything we know about how the natural world works. Their own religious or philosophical presuppositions become mixed into their response to this unfamiliar event. It disturbs them. Instead of immediately rejoicing, they begin debating. They don't like it. It's shocking. It's disturbing. The idea of the miraculous is interesting. The reality is something else. In various ways and from various perspectives, we immediately begin arguing against it. It throws a wrench into the gears of the rational mind. We think we've got a pretty good handle on how the world works. And now this happens. Same thing with those people in the first century. The miracles of the Bible are often 
dismissed as mythology belonging to a time when people were superstitious. And there's some validity to the comment, but in my experience, people are just as superstitious now. Even some who consider themselves very rational and provide criticism of the ancients are themselves given to their own superstitions. Don't tell anyone, it's a secret. We're gonna come back to this. Right now, let's go back to worship.
Some miracles are instantaneous, or at least occur over a short period of time. Others take place on a day-by-day -day basis over a long period of time. People who have been at Harvest City Church for a long time would be familiar with my friend John Upton. No, not Robert Upton, John Upton, his youngest son. John was born with an extra chromosome. The doctors predicted that he would not live very long, at best a few weeks, and with dire predictions concerning quality of life if he did live. In 2012, John passed away at the age of 51. While he had diminished capacity and physical challenges, he had a good life. 
I am, in fact, deeply envious of my friend John in that he traveled far more than I have. Australia, India, England, and other places that many people only dream of. He was deeply loved and cared for his entire life. Every day of his life was a miracle. Some miracles happen instantly. When I was a brand new Christian, I met a couple that was a part of this church. This goes way back. I'm not even sure Bruce McLeod might remember this. Ken and Pearl Harding, an unassuming, friendly couple that loved God. However, the story of how they came to faith is jarring. Ken was an adamant non-believer. He was a supervisor at a sawmill, so you understand the kind of environment he operated in. He had no use for church or religion except as a source for swear words. He described to me how he and some of his friends would go to Pentecostal meetings to mock and to make fun of them. He thought it was all a gigantic joke. Then Pearl got sick, cancer, the big C. And despite lengthy treatments, she was failing. She had reached the stage where they had a room set up as a hospital room in their home with a hospital bed. He was not working because he was at home nursing her. She was the love of his life and he did not know what to do. The doctor had told him in a frank conversation that he needed to be talking to a funeral home to prepare for her death. He was beside himself with anxiety and grief. Then he had a conversation with the next door neighbor. He was out gardening and the neighbor leaned across the fence and asked how Pearl was doing. It all flooded out. The neighbor said, you know, some of these Pentecostal churches, I don't know if he actually used the word Pentecostal, but some of these churches pray for people who are sick. And I hear that sometimes people actually get healed. Ken thought about it. It was kind of against his nature and his character. But he grabbed a phone director and he called the church. Soon he had a visitation pastor and his wife, who was also a pastor in his home. Not a fancy evangelist with a $1,000 suit, but a regular pastor and his wife. They sat and they talked about Jesus and the possibility of healing. Then they went into Pearl's hospital room and anointed her with oil and prayed for her. They did it just like you may have seen us do it a few weeks ago when we did communion. And she was healed. Now when I say she was healed, I don't mean that she felt better and that over time she progressively got better. I mean, she was healed, and she got up out of bed and fixed everyone a cup of tea and a snack. Ken and Pearl sat in their living room and received Jesus as their Savior. A few days later, they were having breakfast, and Pearl said, You know, I think we should tell the doctor what's happened. So Ken called the doctor and told him they were coming to see him. 
Now, the doctor's last memory of Pearl was that she was on her deathbed. So he objected, and he pleaded with them that it was not necessary that he would come and he would visit their home. Ken assured him that it was okay and they could come to the office. And so they did. And the doctor was stunned. They told him what had happened. The doctor was not a Christian or a believer in this sort of healing at all. However, he could not dispute that what had occurred in Pearl's life, he, he saw it with his own eyes. He examined her. And he wrote a gracious and detailed letter explaining what Pearl's condition was and what treatment she had received. He included his prognosis. Then he concluded by saying that in his opinion, there was no other credible explanation than that Pearl had received a divine healing. Somehow God had seen fit to completely remove the cancer and reverse the ravages of cancer. Ken served on the board in this church for many years. He passed away from a heart attack many years ago. Pearl outlived him and actually remarried and resettled in the Fraser Valley. I know this happened and that it is true because I knew Ken and Pearl personally for many years. I don't have the doctor's letter, but I read it myself in their home one afternoon while I enjoyed tea and a snack in the same living room where she had served tea to the pastor and his wife after her healing. Miracles are real. I have met some and I know them personally. Matthew 8, verse 5 to verse 17. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said, I'll, I'll go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a reference to the fact that the people who should know better, uh, the religious experts and all these people that you know, believe in God and this stuff were rejecting the, even the idea of miraculous. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in a bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on them. 
When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities, and he carried our diseases. Jesus is the miracle worker. Many others claim to be miracle workers. Jesus is the true miracle worker. The view that miracles do not happen is largely shaped by a philosophical worldview. When challenged according to his own standards of skepticism and empiric when challenged according to its own standards of skepticism and empirical evidence, this worldview fails. One of the most challenging reads on this topic is a two-volume work by Craig Keener entitled Miracles. There you go. I'll pretend I'm the evangelist with the books to offer, but you can get these on Amazon or anywhere. In these texts, he takes the tools of David Hume and his followers' skepticism and empirical evidence and applies them to the study of miracles. He provides a sound, documented study of the question of miracles. He ably defends the New Testament record and teaching about miracles. He also provides many carefully documented contemporary miracles. Whether you are a dismissive skeptic or a firm believer in miracles, Craig Keener will challenge you. He provides sound basis for the belief in and expectation of miracles. One of the main points of the biblical narrative is that miracles are associate, associated with the ministry of Jesus did not stop. The apostles and the early church saw many miracles. When you read the Apostolic Fathers, you read about miracles. When you read about the early Catholic Church and into the period of Roman Catholic dominance, you read about miracles. When you read through the early Reformation period and the later Reformation period, you are confronted with revival movements which are characterized by the miraculous. When you reach the holiness movement in the 19th century and the early Pentecostal movement in the early 20th century, the pace picks up miracles. It is only as the church moved to a more philosophical and naturalistic worldview that we see miracles de-emphasized. They didn't go away. It's just that they're no longer part of the main conversation. There is no age of miracles, and it is not over. The miraculous has been a part of the churches and individual Christian experience from the beginning. Miracles have not ended. The only thing that has changed is our response to them and how we process them. This history of the miraculous through the ministry of Jesus, through his people, through the anointed believers, it is a continuum to this day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Faith, faith, faith. For some people, faith became a dirty word when there were people who were 
uh, doing excessive stuff or teaching wild and excessive things using faith. But it is an honorable word. It is a word that you taught us, Jesus, that we ought to have faith. And I pray for your people, Lord, that, they, that their faith will be stirred, that their own natural faith and belief will be stirred. But as well, Lord, that you will gift this church with faith for the miraculous, not as a show, not as entertainment and excitement and something to be sensationalized, but Lord, because miracles are about people who are in desperate need receiving the touch of God and having their lives changed, not just inwardly through salvation, but literally in every way the change comes because of the miraculous. And so, Lord, I lift up this church and I pray, oh God, give us faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.